Good afternoon, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to the latest episode of The Free Marketeers. Uh, we're a week into lockdown level three, so um, I'm glad to see that anarchy reigns, that people are going about their daily lives now. I hope you guys are being responsible with your social distancing, but I think we're going to get onto that. Uh, things have taken a very interesting turn in the last week, and interesting is putting it mildly. I thought uh, we would start off this week talking about police brutality. I think it is on everyone's minds. It is very important. And luckily this week to help me guide, and to help me walk through this, this very delicate and concerning topic is Martin van Staden, also from the FMF, and our guest, Cindy Levavaza. Guys, thank you for being with me. Absolutely. Um, on police brutality, of course, the, the main name in people's minds when that is brought up now is George Floyd, who in my estimation was brutally murdered by police in the United States. Uh, to me, there is no real way to equivocate around that, um, or I think we should be unequivocal in that regard. But then we talk about South Africa. So a lot of us are engaged on social media and we talk about what's happening in the US around Mr. Floyd and the actions taken by police there. The, the protests have taken hold in many cities in the US, but I feel like to a large extent, things in South Africa are being, being ignored. Um, I did some reading up this morning and in South Africa, the country has arrested more people than any other country during the lockdown. Uh, over 230,000 people have been arrested for violating draconian measures. And on top of that, 11 South Africans died in police action during the lockdown. The death of Mr. Collins Causa after his violent detention by the SANDF, um, and for which they have been castigated by the courts. Uh, that's one thing. And also the deaths of 10 other South Africans in police action confirmed by the Independent Police Investigative Directorate to Parliament in May. So to start off with, uh, maybe Martin, with you, I guess when we accept the premise that government can impose this lockdown almost overnight, strip away civil liberties, we at the same time shouldn't be surprised when we see instances of police brutality in South Africa. It, it continues the trend that has been you know, running for, for decades, one could argue centuries, where governments in South Africa think very little of the lives of people in the country, especially the majority of people. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, I think this is probably a middle-class condition, but most people misunderstand what the law is. And the way I always like to sum it up is that the law is an opinion with a gun. Uh, the law is force. And whenever you ask for a law or you say hashtag leadership, look at these great laws and regulations that, uh, that are being imposed on us. Part of what you are saying is that if me, my family, my friends, my fellow countrymen, if we disagree with any aspect whatsoever of what is currently being imposed on us, there is a chance that we will be brutally beaten up at best and at worst we will be killed. Uh, and we've seen this now play out. Uh, um, I mean, the, for me, the, the worst example of this from the United States, since everyone focuses on it, is Eric Gardner. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, he was selling loose cigarettes. And uh, his, uh, I'm sure that was somehow illegal. Some regulations said you can't do that. Uh, that is death sentence. That, that's the reason why he was, he was selling loose cigarettes. Uh, and in South Africa, uh, Colin Skoza, we need to, like, our listeners should appreciate the facts of what happened there. He was sitting on his own property, uh, 
with a half-drunken uh, bottle of beer, I believe, next to an empty chair. Troops were passing by. They saw that. They questioned him about it. He said, I'm allowed to drink on my own property because the regulations never said you're not allowed to drink. They simply stopped the sale of alcohol. And uh, because of his insolence, uh, his insubordination, his refusal to just uh, salute the soldiers back, he got beaten up. They poured the beer over his head. They uh, hit him with the butt of rifles. Uh, and his wife said he died later that day, I think, on his bed. Um, yeah, uh, murder. Uh, it's, it's sick. And that's, that's simply the result of what happens when we as citizens in our communities and uh, our friends, our family, and say, wow, we have an issue. Let's, let's solve it. Let's do social distancing. Instead of that, we say, please, daddy government, please, my parent, my dad, my mom, impose these things on us, and then people die. Um, I'm, it's, it's terrible, but we ask for it. Uh, and I, I, I tend to roll my eyes at the outrage mob as, as, as a result of that. I, I cannot take people seriously who beg government for these things. And then when government does exactly what classical liberals, libertarians have been saying for centuries government will do, then they're outraged. Then it's like, oh my goodness, what happened? I, I roll my eyes at that. So it's, it's a great injustice. But as you always like pointing out, Chris, it's a, it's a philosophical problem. We need, we need more people to simply become aware of the reality of the nature of the state, the nature of law. And that is really the only way to, to um, solve these problems. It's, it's really, it is a philosophical issue because just choosing another leader isn't going to help. It's, it's all already part of the, the fabric of the system. Um, Sandile, I will cede the floor to you now, but I think, you know, just an interesting thing to me, um, I've been heartened by the protests in the US around police brutality and the pressure being put in terms of reform and that kind of thing. But why, on the one hand, I'm very happy with that, but why, on, why do you think are we not seeing the same thing in South Africa? It's a question I've been asking myself um, as well. Um, I think just to tag on to Martin's point, I'm not sure South Africans genuinely and truly appreciate freedom and their own rights and individual rights. Because the, the one contrast I saw is two weeks ago, the same celebrities, South African celebrities and people who are telling us to stay home and obey the government are now outraged at the murder of a black American man, but a black South African man was murdered in cold blood by our government. Mm -hmm. What's even worse is that people accepted a very limp-wristed apology from our president. Mm. People just gave him a free pass. And you can see it throughout the way people have reacted. So Ramaphosa hasn't really stood in front of the media and answered tough questions like other leaders from supposed democracies. I've, I've seen Donald Trump have to stand in front of the press and answer tough questions. I've seen Jacinda Ardern, Justin Trudeau, Bojo, I haven't seen him. I haven't seen any of our premiers answer tough questions because if they had to, I'm thinking of people here in the Eastern Cape, uh, Keda Oscar Mabuyan. And I'm thinking if he had to answer tough questions about what exactly they are doing about X, Y, Z, 
I think you'd find a lot of things are lacking. And so for me, I think there is a problematic, uh, I guess, endemic culture in this country where we just, we want somebody to tell us what to do. We latch on to the name. Because in some, in some way, this whole blacking out your thing in these black squares is a culture in which people are following a fad. Right. Because a week or two weeks from now, people are going to forget about it. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like to pull up is in South Africa, we have our own George Floyd tape. Um, I, I can't remember what year it was specifically, but a 35-year-old Mozambican man named Ernesto Nwauve, he was burnt alive in full view of the media. There wasn't this level of outrage. He was doused in gasoline, burnt alive. The media took pictures and videos. South Africans to this day, no justice has been served to that man's family. I, it, it, to me, there's just it's a philosophical thing, but I also think you need to add this cultural dynamic in this country where people have a kind of mental slavery. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's one of the reasons uh, a lot of us who try and preach freedom or try and talk about freedom to people often have a struggle because not just philosophically but culturally, South Africans across the color line and the socioeconomic spectrum seem to just have this slavery around them when it comes to these issues. I mean, we we can argue until we blur in the face. I even without the debts, I saw the pictures of police and army humiliating and degrading poor people in the townships mm. and in informal settlements. And not enough people were bothered by that. And I, I just, I, I was fuming by myself and writing long Facebook posts. And I just, I, I, I was wondering, and I was like, why aren't people more angry at this? Mm. Where people's rights and liberties are trampled on. And I, I don't know. I just, I think it, it is a philosophical, philosophical problem as Martin points out, but I also think, I don't know if it's a carryover from apartheid, but there is something there that people just, they're all about, yes, daddy government. I mean, it was, and and just as a last point, it was strange to me how quickly people wanted to trust government. Mm -hmm. This is a government that has brutalized us, to to quote Julius's um, controversial statement, we have been molested without Vaseline for so long. And people just were like, trust the government, trust the government. And I was sitting thinking, so we're just supposed to trust the government? What? Mm-hmm. Like, it sounded insane to me. Mm-hmm. It sounded insane to me that people didn't want to question. It sounded insane to me that people didn't want premiers and Cyril in front of the media. It's insane to me that people are okay with the lack of transparency where we don't get data because it's for our own good or whatever. That's, that's crazy to me. A lot of, um, I was going to say a lot of, um, go ahead. Sorry. It's true. Yeah. So if I can just touch on what Sindile said there, and I think it's an incredibly important point, uh, is that we (laughs) have, I always like saying that history is a terrible teacher, uh, even though I'm obsessed with history, I enjoy it, but, we have this thing in South Africa where uh, for decades now, maybe centuries, we've had the same level of government brutality towards, uh, towards citizens. And uh, more recently, we've had just corruption and inefficiency 
been widely reported. It's been uh, complained about from all communities. Often had service delivery protests once upon a time in South Africa, uh, whereby people said that we live under an incompetent state. And then almost as if, uh, if, if any of you have watched Men in Black, there's little light mm -hmm. things where they zap you and then you just forget whatever happened within a set period. It's like suddenly, wow, a nice speech was made. Suddenly government is competent. It is efficient. It is able to take on this virus. It's like we're internationally, apparently internationally uh, praised for our swift response and the health department is doing a great job and everything. And suddenly everything is okay. And, and as we sit here now, people who used to be very aware of how incompetent and efficient, brutal our state is, are like, no, we, we should defer to government in this. Real credentialed liberals and libertarians and uh, even people from opposition parties uh, f from the start of this thing were all about government taking this action. I think this is a very important point that we need to bear in mind because somehow it seems like we live in a very compartmentalized world whereby, okay, the service delivery period is now over, new game, we're starting over. It's not like it's the same, the same people, the same structures, the same culture, as Sindile points out, and definitely the same political philosophy underlying it. We need to do better uh, learning from history. And uh, currently, we're, we're nowhere near where it is. It's simply been too, way, way too easy. Mm -hmm. You're seeing, I mean, yeah, one is seeing now in the last week, two weeks, a lot more critique of the government. I mean, someone like uh, Prof. Tuli Madonsela, as well, she penned an open letter to the president questioning the actions of his government. So, you know, it feels like a lot of members of civil society that might have been opposed before are now saying the same thing. But to me, and, and you know, for you, Sandile, it's something we need to explore, whether it's a cultural or a psychological uh, reason for people to have this need for some sort of strong man, strong leader, some strong thing to lead them, whether it's going to lead them over the cliff or not. I, I struggle to understand this exact compulsion. We've seen through colonialism, through apartheid, when a strong government is in charge and when it decides, okay, that group of people based on, for example, the color of their skin, they're no longer desirable and we're going to take the steps necessary. So how do you think if a government in principle is that strong to do that sort of thing to one group of people, it's strong in principle to do things to other groups of people as well. It just continues this, this trend almost throughout South African history. I think, I don't know, the South African state has definitely brutalized citizens for as, almost as long as it has existed. It's, it's quite terrifying and you know, scary to think about to me. But just, I want to, I mean, I don't have to put this to either of you, maybe to both of you, in terms of next sort of thing to, to run with, what do you think can, you know, I want to talk about the philosophy of it all, but practically what in South Africa do you think could be done around some sort of reform, that kind of thing, maybe for Martin, for you, you know, in the rule of law, if we're all not equal on in the law, if politicians have different laws and we have laws, then we're never going to have equal application of law and justice. Um, so you've got that rule of law aspect, but how do you, how do we reform the, the police and the army so that they're, that, that they treat people as individual human beings as like actual beings not as just objects yeah no i think if, if we can get into like practic, pra practical reforms uh i mean i would the major reform that i would obviously like to see is an awakening 
of South Africans in general, but that's not something that you can consciously legislate. Uh, on a more practical level, I would say that this, this silly business of the police and the army investigating their own misconduct. I mean, it's so absurd. It's so patently absurd that that's even a thing, not here just here, but anywhere around the world. It is ridiculous. Uh, it, it shouldn't be up to them to investigate them. So we need to have a civilian oversight board of the police composed of, I don't know, make it a, a type of jury whereby people are randomly selected for police oversight duty or something along those and of course you can opt out if you want um, put ordinary everyday South Africans in charge of investigating these issues sure they can rely on lawyers and so on to help them with the technicalities but in by default by in, in principle it needs to be a civilian oversight and obviously they need to be guided by law I, I don't know uh, I, I haven't been following it but some army or some military panel said that, I don't know if this was the Collins Corsa uh, case, but some, some misconduct, they said that it was two female soldiers who were insulted by this civilian uh, saying something about them being female soldiers. And then they killed this person. The soldiers killed the civilian. And the army cleared them of uh, misconduct because of gender inequality, because some something took over or whatever it's 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 actually quite it's it's it baffles my mind i don't even know what to say to that as a lawyer it's like i don't know what to do with that um but but we we need to put that to a stop and and it's it's a broader thing we need to stop these commissions of inquiry government investigating itself uh, endlessly uh, uh, I, i'm a big fan of private prosecutions and we i think we somehow need to encourage that uh, let victims, uh, Collins Causa's uh, family, should be enabled to press uh, to actually prosecute the case. Get to get a private prosecutor, a trained lawyer, to prosecute it on their behalf. Then wait for the NPA, uh, because uh, <laughs> I've I've seen some scary statistics about how many crimes are committed and how many are actually prosecuted. We don't have the capacity in the state to to follow these things through. So I think that's that's a somewhat more practical reform. Encourage private prosecutions, have um, civilian oversight of our security forces. Um, and yeah, on, on the rule of law, we need parliament to be far more uh, clear in its language of legislation. We need it to be far less generous to the executive and giving the minister of uh, traditional affairs this super ministerial power to legislate uh, from the hip and implement all these regulations that's it's patently ridiculous and patently in, in contravention of the, the rule of law that says law must be clear accessible quite fixed not changing constantly and must at the end of the day be subject to parliamentary scrutiny and oversight all of that has been uh, very openly brazenly violated during this lockdown so those are three i i guess somewhat practical things that that we can do to stem the tide but uh, uh just quickly on the u.s thing they really need to get rid of qu uh, qualified immunity for police officers i mean that's that's just ridiculous uh, any notion of of you because you're a police officer suddenly you have this almost magical authority to to break the law uh, if you did it with good intentions or something uh, didn't do it with malicious intent. 
that that that's that's not that's not good and i'm i'm more than happy to see protesters occupying police stations in the us until such a time as they make that reform because it's it there's no place in a in a constitutional democracy especially not in, in the 21st century i believe a representative justin amash is pushing for reform on that particular point around uh, immunity <laughs> so i wish he was the candidate for the libertarian party but that's a Another matter. Uh, Sindile, I will make you, uh, I'll make you Minister of Policing, Minister of Justice for a, for a few minutes so that you can give us your ideas on reform, although maybe that's a more dangerous thing than the uh, other movie might make. <laughs> um, I, I want to take a, a, a different sort of tack to Martin in terms of uh, the police reform, because I, I, I don't think it exists in a vacuum, because I looked up some stats. And while our police are twice as deadly as the American ones, they are six times more likely to die in the line of duty. Um, and that tells me like a, a couple of things, considering the context that we're in in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons our country is so dangerous is because we aren't seeing growth and socioeconomic progress. And that itself can be rooted back to the lack to just how unfree our economy is and how much unions run the gamut in the sense that they block out so many people from being able to get jobs that will allow them to be productive members of society, which is also why I think drinking is such a huge problem in South Africa when they confront the police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the, the, the whole thing of policing can't, be seen separate from um, our economic context. And that in itself, philosophically, is a freedom issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think we would be amiss if we, if we don't talk about, um, if we don't talk about reform in that sense. I mean, we can talk about demilitarizing the police, which is important, very specific mm -hmm. thing. Because in America and in South Africa, that's been part of the problem. If you see Peggy Taylor's language, is, is this militaristic uh, machismo, that sort of thing. Um, that is a real problem, but it's always in the context of, look, as police officers, we are dealing with dangerous situations and we're dying like flies. So people accept that. And I think that the fundamental problem is that we live in a country in which uh, the economy is, is being drowned or is drowning maybe a better word to use is drowning. Um, people are unfree. Um, we, and that has the knock-on effect of being a dangerous society. So we, we have all these carryovers and, and it's becoming very dangerous. So I think any reform that speaks to police reform and, and reform in the sectors of law and justice has to go hand in hand with economic reforms. Because I think you're going to find a lot of resistance um, with the other reforms, I think, if it is not coming with a situation, with improving situations, especially in poorer communities. Um, I think another thing is that we need to professionalize the police service. Because I think any, there's that joke about anybody can get into the police. And I think we have a serious problem. It was on the table initially, and it fell to infighting, this whole thing of professionalizing police, 
and making it a proper university where people get trained properly, et cetera, et cetera. It fell to political infighting. But I think that's something that needs to be um, looked at. Definitely, I think devolving the police and making it much more local and accountable is another thing that we could probably sort of look at and do. But for me, all of that has to come within a context in which our economy is more free and growing and there is improvement socioeconomically. Because I think reforms pushed through without that are going to be met with some very, very stiff resistance. Uh, Sundila, I'm very glad you bring up the, the point on reforms and the, the buzzword nowadays is structural reform that's bandied about or, around a lot. And I'm glad we're talking about it now. I mean, Martin, uh, the, the talk around seizing pensions is, is being brought up again. And surely that's one way for, for reform to be implemented. There's just more money for the state to use so they can implement the right kind of reforms. Yeah, no, I think prescribed assets. Now, I may actually be wrong here, but I remember reading somewhere or hearing this from someone that the apartheid government did this at, at one or two stages, that they actually did uh, reach into pension funds to fund uh, state projects. Now, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that may have happened. I wouldn't be surprised. But it does get back to this idea that uh, what we're doing now is a new innovative solution to a problem that government has now thought about. And that's obviously not true. Uh, seizing people's private property to pay for government vanity projects is, uh, is an, old, an old trick. Uh, and it's every time it's been done, it has at best led to inefficiency and at worst, and I think the worst is usually uh, the, the more common thing. It led to economic collapse. Um, and, and I, I don't want to say this lightly, but I think that if we pursue those policies, things like expropriation without compensation, prescribed assets, then it's going to make the COVID-19 lockdown look like a cakewalk. I think that uh, the economic ruin that will follow from that will be far worse uh, because Venezuela, I think, is always a good example to get back to a very current example. Before any type of... Um, uh, lockdown or anything happened there before COVID was even being spoken about. Uh, the Venezuelan government had done these things. They had seized uh, farms, they had seized corporations, they had seized people's bank accounts. And that has led to extreme uh, famine. It has led to, to starvation. Uh, I believe there was a statistic that something like six Venezuelan children die a week from, from starvation. Uh, the Venezuelan population apparently is uh, uh, holistically suffering from malnutrition. And because of that, they're getting shorter, actually, uh, like a few centimeters shorter now. Uh, I mean, that is, that is what bad policy leads to directly. Uh, and we haven't seen that yet with the COVID-19 lockdown, but I can guarantee that we'll see that if we follow through with what, they, what, what is passing for uh, a radical economic transformation. So real structural reform in South Africa will be exactly what Sindile mentioned, and that is more economic freedom. It will be uh, more liberalization of trade, uh, definitely liberalization of labor relations. That really needs to change urgently, given the uh, increased number of uh, unemployed that we're going to see after uh, the lockdown ends. Uh, we need to, to get rid of many pieces of labor legislation, most of uh, including the Minimum Wage Act and uh, stuff like uh, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, etc. Uh, and just 
we have so many regulations in this country that strangle various sectors that people simply don't uh, think to talk about. ICT, agriculture, many of these things just need to be swept away and that will lead to a, a breath of fresh air that the economy can finally take. And that it's, it's true. That's, that's the only way that you can push through other types of reform, like of the police, uh, like of the military, uh, political reform as well, is if people see their living standards getting better. And as I told people in a recent uh, panel discussion, we can have all these ideas of what we want the government to do for us and how to improve our lives. None of that can happen when there isn't money for it. When there aren't resources for it. The only way to create resources to grow the wealth by is to uh, increasingly move towards a freer and more open economy, a free market. I want to circle around a bit there, if you'll indulge me, just on our first point around the police brutality, because for, I think, 99% of people, it goes hand in hand with racism. And for a lot of people, they equate capitalism and free markets with more racist kind of thinking. So let me play devil's advocate then in that regard and ask you guys for your thoughts on that, because people hear us talking about free market reforms and capitalism and that kind of thing, but they'll say those are the societies that are more racist kind of thing. To me, and, and, you know, I, I tried to watch some of the clip of what happened to George Floyd. I watched maybe 10 seconds. Mm. For me to think that one human being can do that to another human being, just, you know, mm. very often I quote Ayn Rand, like that's my, my paragon. She wrote that racism is the worst form of collectivism. I mean, to me, that clip just illustrates that so beautifully. If you can think of, of a man by the virtue of the color of his skin, that he's part of this group, and you can treat him like this. That to me is the real concretization embodiment of racism, of racist thought. How, <laughs> how do we move from uh, one kind of society where things are you know, more controlled for us, at least we consider things are quite statist now, collectivist. Mm-hmm. The state controls a lot. The government dictates who can trade, who can interact with whom, uh, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. How do we move to a more free society but in the same way, address people's concern that, you know, capitalism, free markets are going to bring about more of this sort of racist attitude between people. I'll throw it to you first, Can, um Just just on the point of, of the racism and the police brutality, I did look up uh, some of the statistics in America. So the, the picture isn't as clear because uh, some of the, the, the data is kind of limited. But um, the... the uh, White Americans are killed at twice, no, 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 white, two times as many white Americans have been murdered by police as black Americans. Mm. However, black Americans, if you control for, you know, population size, are two time, 2.5 times more likely to get killed by the police. There's also some other data that says that um, uh, where black people commit more crime in an area, police shoot them more. But when white people commit more crime in an area, the police shoot them more in America. Mm-hmm. So the salient point, now I'm not saying there isn't bias or racial bias or racism, but the salient point in America is the militarized police. And as Martin pointed out, the qualified immunity. Because I think that's what people want. The real protesters, I'm not talking about the people that are trashing everything. They want police to be held accountable. They want the police to be demilitarized. I think for me, that's the salient point. Because I think when you say it's just about the racism, you're missing 
the point. There are other areas in the world which are racist and have a problematic amount of racism. And you don't see the scenes with Eric Garner or you don't see the scenes with Tamir Rice and with George Floyd. The salient issue is the militarization of the police and people shouldn't lose sight of that. Even if you prove that there is racial bias, the point that we need to, to stick on is that the police need to be demilitarized, the police need to be held accountable and qualified immunity has got to die. So I think from that standpoint, we need to be very careful not to fall into the framework that people are creating, a framework which is not, um, what's the word I can use? It, it, it isn't rightly passing the, the, the facts. It isn't setting up the facts in the correct way. So I think if, if we lead with the racism and say it's a racism thing, we're not actually tackling the real problem. And so from that, I want to lean into the capitalism thing. My take on this is that I think a lot of South Africans actually by just the way they see the world, and this is just from my perception, is that I think a lot more South Africans are capitalistic than people give them credit for. I think what you have is a chattering class um, of middle-class white colored Indian and black people who a lot of them have gone through some of our universities and adopted some of the not so good ideas. Um, and so I think when that is, and because South Africa comes from quite an intense racial past and, and, and apartheid and something very wrong, I think people are easily triggered when you use racism to describe something. People are very, very easily triggered. If you quote a statistic, for example, that white people are X amount of times wealthier than black people, and then somebody says, it's capitalism. Well, that's not actually true. Because I could make a case, for example, that the fundamental problem in this country uh, one of the main ones is the education system. So if you look at youth unemployment, you could easily make not necessarily a causal case, but a collaborative case where you can sort of collate the information. About 50% of our youth are unemployed. But 50% of our kids do not finish high school. Who is in charge of our education system? The government. You look at how young people are not able to climb onto the ladder in, in the workplace. So you build onto that and go, okay, how come young people, especially young black people can't get in after they haven't received an education? Well, it's the unions in cahoots with the government and unions do what unions do, which is protect their members. They're not protecting people who are seeking work. That's not private business. That's the government. So my, my, my problem with that is that often we are crowded out by the bad ideas. And so I think we need to tell the story compellingly and strongly and point out the obvious facts that people can see. Because I, I, maybe I have a lot more faith in South Africans than other people, but I think if we diligently point these things out that people can see every day because sometimes people can see things and not make the connections and the dots people can see that our schools suck that's not private business in fact uh, 
I'm here in Mtata at my mom's house. Mtata is an all, it's basically mostly black people. Most people would clamor to send their children to private schools here. They do, in fact, when they have money, they sacrifice a lot because they're like, well, it's better. You go to Gauteng, our most populous province, the, the newly minted black middle class, a lot of them send their kids to private, if not Model C schools, former Model C schools, they are clamoring to send them to Kuro and, and all these other new private schools because they realize if I want my child to have a future in this country, the private sector will do it better. Mm. And I think, I think if I were to make a criticism of people like me and people like us, is that we don't do enough of a job, job diligently to attack the people who say that capitalism and free markets somehow are racist. We don't do enough of a diligent job to go, wait, 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 no, 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 wait a minute. This, this poverty is being engineered by the government. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll even, I'll, I'll challenge a bit of Martin's point, actually, when he said that we're not already seeing some of the starvation due to the COVID. I think we are. Because the government was systematically starving poor black children. Mm. How, you ask? The government was denying conditional grant money to provincial education departments, grant money that's used for feeding schemes. In the Western Cape, it was, I, I believe, Miss Debbie Schaefer, who was fighting the government tooth and nail, the only MEC who was fighting the government tooth and nail to try and get poor children some food and nutrition because it's often their only meal. And that is a government directive that starved poor black children. People are not bothered by that because they would prefer passive aggressive letters that white people write to each other. Mm-hmm. But that is a, a petition or something. That'll, yeah, let's, uh, yes. let's get uh, 10,000 yeah. signatures or something. Oh. We need to do a better job of attacking this nonsense that says that free markets do something. And sometimes I think people watch some of these American shows and the comedy shows as entertaining as they can be. And they think free market capitalism is is the, 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 the monstrosity of corporatism you see in America where the government lob and lobbyists collude mm. to shut out competition and rig rules in their favor. And I'm like, no, capitalism is that small business owner you see. Capitalism is that guy running his spaza in the hood. That, the, those are the people who are capitalists. Those are the people who are sacrificing time and money and pay themselves last to run their own business. Those are the capitalists. And I think we need to be stronger in attacking that because I think we cede far too much ground to these people that tell lies because that's what they're doing. They're lying. They're misrepresenting the truth. The facts are on our side, but we need to be more ruthless in telling it like it is. Martin, I'll let you pick up on on anything you like there. I... I mean, on that, I want to end on that good a note, but I, I want to give you the chance to, to highlight anything that you thought as well. I know Ben Shapiro likes to say the facts don't care about your feelings. I think we need to, to, to use the facts and the feelings in our fight. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an extremely poignant point that Sindile makes that we simply fail in this. And uh, that is my response to whenever people in our corner very much on our side say the facts don't care about your feelings. Well, the feelings also do not care about the facts. 
And that is something we must bear in mind. I'm not saying we should let off the facts, but we must definitely have narrative in mind. We need to take our data sets and our indices of economic freedom and all these things, and we need to turn them into stories. Uh, we need to turn them into movies, into poems, into uh, short stories, uh, books, etc. Uh, that is what we need. Radio shows, uh, uh, children's stories. These are all things that we need to start doing because that is how, at the end of the day, socialism really won. They infiltrated the culture. And uh, people now, and, and I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but 80% or so of any series or movies that you watch is going to have some underlying anti-capitalist mentality. There will be an evil business owner or something somewhere. Uh, and uh, that's, that's just how it is. And I think I take my hat off to the socialists. They've done a, a brilliant job and I can't fault them for that. They push their ideology. Now we need to do the same thing. We need to tell a better story. And, and uh, absolutely, this thing about uh, capitalism being racist, that is simply a, a, a factual error. And I uh, want to get so just a little bit into the history of South Africa. The National Party government ran both its uh, first, the first time it won an election, I believe that was 1924. Uh, it won that election in the in a coalition with the Labour Party. Uh, they their entire platform was against the capitalism of the Young's United Party government. They said that he was in cahoots with British capital with the mines, and that he that that government was undermining poor white workers. The National Party at that stage, uh, I believe, but it certainly did in 1948 promised the nationalization of mines in this country. Uh, it did that in 1948, where it also ran an anti-capitalist platform. And the, uh, throughout its um, the high apartheid, when apartheid was at its height, uh, it was very much against so-called liberal capitalism because of the idea that it breaks up communities, it creates this individual-centric society, and this very conservative Calvinistic Afrikaner community did not like that. So there was a very strong anti-capitalist mentality. Um, uh, it was only in the early 1980s uh, under the government of P.W. Bueta, uh, but in the global context of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, that the South African government started taking privatization and deregulation seriously. That was the only period in apartheid history, was the 80s and into 1994, when you could maybe describe the South African government as a capitalist government. And during that time, there were widespread reports of a black middle class finally starting to emerge in the 1980s. Of course, very small, uh, doesn't justify any of the measures that the apartheid government took, but the little bit of capitalism it started toying with, uh, granting property rights, etc. These were all very beneficial relative to what was happening uh, in other aspects of the government. And then, of course, the new government in 1994 was also quite capitalist, and we had great economic growth uh, at the end of apartheid. Um, on the other hand, the Conservative Party, which was the uh, National Party's chief opponent, uh, promised, uh, I think, throughout the run of its entire existence from 1982 up until, I think, 1994, thereabouts, promised the nationalization of South Africa's mines. Uh, so, so we just need to always bear this history 
in mind and know that wherever South Africa has ever tried a bit of capitalism, it has been beneficial, especially to the poor and especially to those that the, uh, the interventionists, the socialists try to undermine, which has always been poor black people. In this country, it has always been poor black people who always received the, the, uh, the short uh, uh, stick when it came to government economic policy. And that is true today as it has ever been. Um, so we need, to, we need to know the history. Capitalism has never been racist in any way, shape or form. Uh, it has always been corporatism, socialism, communism, fascism that have used uh, government policy in, 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 in the economy to, to carry its racist message. So that's, it's, it's just a factual anomaly when people say that capitalism is racist. Uh, and we need to fight that. We need to tell a more compelling story than our opponents. Uh, I now now that our podcasts are on Spotify as well, I think we should start doing the three-hour-long Joe Rogan s kind of things because I want to keep listening to you guys for for much longer. But we we have to to wrap up around here. I I want to give both of you just a, a final chance for any final thoughts, any parting thoughts. I very much enjoyed your guys' take on. The big issues of the last week or so, it's, it feels a bit mm-hmm. cathartic in a way that we get to talk about them in this context. It's, it's, a lot of it is just too much to handle and, and to observe the, the brutality and the, the harshness that is being meted out on people. That has been for the last three months. It's been, it's, it's been something else. Um, Sandile, your final thoughts? Um, I think I, I want to zero in on the protests. Um, and, and, and some of the hypocrisy around it in terms of COVID-19. Um, I think I've been very troubled by the fact that people all of a sudden became okay with people gathering, mass gatherings. Mm. I understand that um, the, the cause is just mm. against police brutality, but the cause of small business owners who lost their businesses was also just but they were shut out. But now all of a sudden, it's okay for people to protest en masse. So for me, that's been something that's really, really disturbed me. And I think part of it, if I may suggest so, is there's a nefarious thing. The people gathering are doing for a quote unquote, black cause. The business owners are quote unquote, white capital. And again, I think that shows what some of the people, the, the mindset of some of the people who are, who are very critical of business owners in this country, who are complaining because of the boot on their throats and them losing their livelihoods. And I think that is something in the coming days or in the coming months when we are looking at the entirety of this and some of the unjust laws and that uh, the Constitutional Court has, has said that level f- three and four are unconstitutional. I mean, the High Court, the North Gauteng High Court, excuse me. We need to look at that and go, wait a minute. What does this say about our society in which people are always complaining about racism and saying certain things and they can look at business owners And I mean, the substitute in this country often for business owners or for capital is whiteness. And they can go, well, screw you. 
and your just cause and you trying to put food on the table for your families and you losing maybe your car and your house or whatever, you know, the things that are going to come, the downstream costs of COVID-19, because not a lot of people are talking about some of the downstream costs that are going to happen. But then they can turn around and go, well, the protesters, their, their cause is just. And I think we need to, to sort of look at this and go, wait, does this not have a racist undertone to it? I mean, yes, the, even black business owners suffered, but do you see where I'm getting this? And I think that's something we need to look at in the future in terms of, in terms of um, discussing um, all of these matters. And I think we, we need to be able to say, no, wait, these business owners who are going to keep the economy alive, these business owners who create value, which you're going to need when there's public health problems in our society, these business owners who pay their taxes faithfully, who you are going to need because right now, as more and more South Africans lose their jobs, they're going to need help because they're hungry. Uh, the starvation numbers in this country have shot up. And as far as I can tell, hungry people, people who are weak from hunger and, and hunger-related diseases are not going to be able to fight off subsequent waves of the virus. So even as government has, 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 has allocated that 500 billion, they're going to need more money downstream. So the question is, what are we going to do? How are we going to pass all of this as we, as we move forward and look at some of the ramifications of what the state did to us as people? Because there's the very obvious upfront stuff like the murders of Collins Cause and the 230,000 arrests. But there's also the downstream stuff, which is people who are hungry, which is the money we will need to keep people alive. It's going to be fixing our schools, where I think more than 400 of them were vandalized badly and stuff was stolen during the lockdown. That's going to cost money. That hasn't been factored into the 500 billion rand um, stimulus, whatever. That hasn't been factored in. What about the downstream costs of children who will starve, some of whom will die, some of whom will be stunted? Because one of the things I can foresee is that people are going to blame capitalism when people are stunted. And it's going to be along racial lines, mostly. Because let's be honest, the people who, are, who, who have been starving during this lockdown are black people, mostly. Colored people, black people. So when that exacerbates the racialized inequality in the country, we need to be able to look back and go, this is what the state did to you. And 2021 is coming around. We need to be able to remind people when the, the government is trying to sell people lies. This is what the state did to you. We need to say it as loudly as possible, as loudly as we can as people who love freedom as people who want this country to be free and to thrive, we need to point that out religiously, diligently, whatever word you want to use. Martin, um, your, your sort of wrapping up uh, on that note, I, I wish I could get, uh, when, the, when, when President Ramaphosa sits down again in front of the nation, I wish I could just get Sandile in the room to hold his feet to the fire, but um, I get a bit depressed about the future of the country but then when i get to, get to talk to people like you guys i know that 
some of us will continue pushing the right ideas and trying to remind people of what the state did do to them. And I think we should continue to do so. So Sindila, I thank you for reminding us on that. And then Martin, your final thoughts. Yeah, so uh, that's absolutely true. And I think what we need to do going forward as liberals, as libertarians, or just as people who have a healthy aversion to government, need to understand that now is the time to uh, really push our narrative, to really push our message, and to drop this historical apologetics that we've been about, always apologizing, saying, oh, I'm so sorry that there, uh, this and that might have happened under a free market. It, it, that needs to end because we, we simply have the reality of, the, of global prosperity on our side and the state has the reality of global suffering on its side. In every situation, at every single turn, this is the case. And I'm quite heartened by the fact that dozens of, probably dozens of South African organizations, unfortunately, very late in the game, but they've done it nonetheless, have woken up to uh, the nonsensical nature of this lockdown and uh, started challenging it in court. And I hope this grows into, call it a movement, but of uh, a mass of people who are going to say, no, it was government and it's lockdown that did this. It was not COVID-19. The many people still say the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, no. No, and we're not saying COVID is is harmless. It's certainly very harmful, but it seems to pale in comparison to what governments uh, have been able to achieve over over its history and during this lockdown. So we need to remind people, as Sindile rightly says, this is what the government has done, and uh, that is going to fall to us. That is going to be our job to to tell this story. Uh, As liberals and uh, throughout South African history, it has been the liberals who have pointed out that it's government. It's not the, the mines. It's not the blacks. It's not the Jews. It is the government. It is the political class. It is them. They are our opponents. They are the opponents of freedom. They are the opponents of prosperity. Keep your eyes on the prize and just err on the side of freedom. No, no better note on which to end. Um, gentlemen, Zandile. No, I just said I want to say amen to my <laughs> It's not Sunday, but my man preached. Ah, oh, thank you guys. Thank you for your time, for your insights. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you as always. So thank you for your for your time. Uh viewers and listeners, thank you once again for joining us. We really appreciate you watching our episodes, listening to them. Um uh, speaking of listening. I would like to remind all of you that you can now find our podcasts on Google Podcasts, on iTunes, and on Spotify. So if you prefer listening there, please uh, go to those platforms. With uh, the YouTube channel, with these episodes, please continue liking them, sharing them, uh, telling your friends about them, maybe not even your friends, your enemies, some people you think you could convince. Let's get more discussion going in South Africa along the right lines. Um, We thank you for your support. If you found value in the work we've done throughout the lockdown, please consider donating to the Free Market Foundation. We greatly value that support and it means a lot to us. It it ensures that we can continue doing the work that is important to us, doing the work that we value, um, that we we dedicate our lives to. And to do that, you can go to www.freemarketfoundation.com. There you can also find all of our articles and media releases. On that note, I wish you all a good weekend ahead. Uh, Take care out there and we'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye.